Well, good morning. That was a little bit weak. We'll try it again. Good morning. There we go. My name is Ben Kruger, and I have the privilege of serving here as the Family Ministries Pastor at Maranatha. Um, my wife Ashley and I have been married for 14 years, and we're thankful for four kids that God has blessed us with, Zeke, Titus, Naomi, and Judah. Um, and as Pastor David shared earlier this morning, I just encourage you to be continuing to pray for Pastor Andrew and for Isaac Dye as they are traveling back from Costa Rica today. Um, God had given them an opportunity to go down and to teach the word um, to pastors and ministry leaders down there. And so we're thankful for their ministry this past week and looking forward to getting to hear about the ways that God has been working. So this morning, we're going to be continuing our study in the book of Luke. And we're going to be picking up in Luke chapter 12, this morning, verses 35 through 48, which if you're using the Bible in front of you, the pew Bible there or the chair in front of you is on page 871. And also we want to encourage you, if you don't have a Bible accessible at home, to feel free to just keep that, take that home with you. We would love for you to be able to continue your study of God's word throughout the week. So Luke chapter 12 is where we're going to take a look at this morning. Now, before we jump into the end of this, uh, this chapter today, I want to take a few minutes to just re remind ourselves of the context of what's happening here and kind of leading up the first 37 verses where we've been. So as we think about the context, who? That's the first question, right? Jesus is the one who's speaking here, and he's addressing a crowd. If you look all the way back to Luke 12, 1, you'll see that there were thousands upon thousands there, so many that they were trampling each other. So this was a big audience that Jesus was speaking to. Um, among them would have been many of the religious elites, the Pharisees, and these were ones who were very opposed to Jesus and his teaching. You remember a few weeks ago, Pastor Andrew was talking about what it meant to be a hypocrite, and that word really carries this idea of carrying a mask, right? Putting on a mask. That is, external actions that don't conform with our internal beliefs. And so, Jesus was really concerned about addressing hypocrisy that was there in his audience. And so, you're going to see that even today as we get near the end of our passage as well. Also among those listening would have been many true disciples, those who were authentic followers of Jesus. And so we recognize that Jesus is addressing a little bit of a mixed audience here as well. So the other contextual thing that's important to think about is where Jesus was at. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but a lot of times I hear Bible places and I'm like, oh, okay, that's in the Middle East over there, right? They don't always do a good job of thinking about where this is at on a map. And so I want to give you a map of of Israel and see that Jesus had been doing his ministry in Galilee. That's up in the north there. And this is where Jesus was from originally. It's Jesus of Galilee, right? And so as he is now moving down to Judea, this is a really kind of this last bit of time that Jesus is doing ministry before going to the cross. And so when we think about where connected really closely with that is when. Jesus is two to three months away from the cross here. And so he's traveling south into Judea, and the content that he's teaching is not new content. In fact, as you look across the Gospels, you'll see a lot of similarities between Jesus's ministry in Galilee and the content of the Sermon on the Mount and what he's teaching here as well. And so we need to recognize the fact that Jesus is repeating this teaching means that it's very important. And so it would have been same content, but to a new audience, to those who were in Judea. 
And again, this is all of chapter 12, all of what we're seeing teach, uh, Jesus teach there. So this was very important and something he was really trying to hit home as he was proclaiming the kingdom. So kind of with that context in mind, let's look to the scripture. Uh, I'll read it for us and then we'll pray afterward, okay? So look down at Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 48, and here's what it says. Jesus says, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, Blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager? whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all of his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming, and he begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and to drink and to get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour that he does not know, and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required." And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your word. Thankful that we can hear the teaching of your son Jesus 2,000 years ago that is still so relevant and applicable to us today. Holy Spirit, we ask for your help this morning. I pray for your help in the words that I speak that they would be your words and that I might faithfully deliver your truth. I pray for, for us hearing God, for each one here. We come, Lord, with many burdens, many distractions, many, many different things happening throughout the week. Pray that you would help each of us to set those things aside and come humbly before your word. Help us to see how relevant it is and applicable it is to the way that we live today and throughout this coming week. Help us not to be just hearers of the word, but doers, those who are transformed by your spirit. We thank you that you are a faithful God and that you will do this and that you give good gifts to your children when we ask. So we ask for faith and we ask for eyes to see your living word and that it would transform our lives. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at this passage today, we're talking about this idea of being ready for the king. And before we jump into the text, I really want to ask this question and get you thinking a little bit, okay? What is your attitude toward Jesus' return? What is your attitude toward Jesus' return? 
I think there are a lot of different potential responses that we could think about on this, but I want to focus on sort of two ends of the spectrum this morning. And so as you reflect on this in your own heart, I want to, I want to give you one end of that spectrum. The first one is that we can become obsessed with finding the precise time and date of Jesus's return. Okay, if you remember Acts chapter 1, and students, I know you remember this very well as you were studying it this morning with Alex. Um, here the disciples come to Jesus and they say, Lord, are you now going to uh, establish the kingdom? Is this it? Are you restoring the kingdom to Israel? And you remember Jesus' response is, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons that the Father has set by his own authority. Okay? So Jesus is reminding them the specifics of when I'm coming isn't where your priority should be. Later in that passage, we see Jesus say, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. That was to be the priority of the disciples. You know, historically, many have fallen into this trap. Maybe some of you in this room are, are, uh, have enough experience to remember back to 1988. And there was a guy that wrote a book called 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Come in 1988. And as we know, Jesus didn't come in 1988. But somehow he had the audacity to think that a good sequel was needed, and so he wrote a book called 89 Reasons Why Jesus Will Come in 1989. Okay? Jesus didn't come in 1989. But the reality is, culture is oftentimes, and even within our own culture, we can get caught up into an obsession with trying to figure out the exact time that Jesus is going to come. Um, Maybe some of you have seen October 4th. I don't know if you've seen October 4th as the new hot button date, okay? Uh, I I stumbled upon this this week as I was just simply going to Google and asking, when will Jesus come back? I I thought this will be interesting to see what the internet says. And apparently, if you didn't know this, on October 4th, FEMA has scheduled a day where they will do a mass test of our communications, our mass emergency communications. So every cell phone will get a buzz of a message saying this is a test. Every, every TV, every radio will go across all the different broadcasts. And apparently there are some crazy outlandish theories about all kinds of crazy things that that will trigger on October 4th, right? But what I want you to see is this is not a good end of the continuum we should be on. Obsession about the specific time and date that Jesus will come. And so I think probably few of us in this room fall in this, but the other side of this spectrum is equally dangerous and probably slightly more appealing. And that's to have an indifferent, unaffected attitude when we think about Jesus' return. It doesn't really seem relevant. Why does it matter? Right? Maybe without thinking too much, we might echo the, the false teachers that Peter was addressing in Second Peter chapter 3, where he said, these false teachers will say, where is this coming, he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning. It's easy for us to think, Jesus hasn't come back yet. It's been 2,000 years. Probably won't happen in my lifetime either. Who really cares? Right? And this kind of thinking is equally dangerous. This passage can lead us to unbelief. In fact, if we continue down this line of thought, we may end up like the, the servant at the end of the passage who says, My master is delayed in coming which leads this servant to act in disobedience to his master's command, believing that there's still time. He can still clean up his act before Jesus comes. But as we will see today in this passage, the kind of attitude that we are called to have is faithful readiness, right? And I'm going to put that kind of right in the the middle of the continuum there, to have an attitude of faithful readiness. Okay, 
So what is faithful readiness? What does that look like? Well, let's take a look at this passage and see Jesus' teaching on the attitudes and the motivations that his servants should have while we wait. And at the end of the passage, we'll see Jesus giving a test to differentiate between the true servant of the king and the hypocrite who really doesn't know him at all. Let's look at that together. As you look at your notes there, you'll see the first one is to see the attitude of a waiting servant. And we really see Jesus outlining this in chapter 12, verses 35 through 40. Jesus uses an illustration that would have been very familiar to his audience, but maybe for us isn't quite as familiar. He's talking about a wedding feast. Now, when we think about weddings here, and I know some of you have recently planned weddings or are planning weddings, you can think of Isaac and Sadie as I know that's uh, heavy on their mind even as Isaac's traveling back and they get ready for their wedding. But when we think about weddings, we often think of timelines and schedules and details and everything running according to the plan. That wasn't the way weddings worked in the first century. The wedding started when everything was prepared and ready, whenever that was. And then the wedding could go as long as seven days, the wedding feast. And so for these servants, there was a high level of uncertainty about when their master would leave, how long he would be gone, and when he would get back, right? It's not like the invitations that we get today that often have a beginning and an end time on them. So this was very different. There was an uncertainty and an ambiguity. And so as we look at the attitude of a waiting servant, the first attitude we see in this passage is these servants were ready and prepared. Now, the first statement in verse 35 there, you'll notice, is this idea of being dressed for action. The original Greek here is this idea of girding up your loins, okay? Now, again, this is kind of lost on us in the first century because most of us guys are used to wearing pants. But back in those days, the men would have worn long flowing robes. And women, you can appreciate this more than us guys can. If you are wearing a long dress, or in their case, a long robe, and you try to move quickly, you might get caught up in that, right? And so this idea of girding up your loins meant being prepared. The men would grab their robes and hike them up a bit higher and then grab either a sash or a belt, tie it around their waist to hold up the extra robe, and they would be ready to go. They could kick into gear. They could run or jump into action wherever there was a need. There was a readiness and a preparedness. But when the need came was not the time to gird up your loins because you were probably already too late. And so there was a sense of being ready. Now, quite honestly, this was less comfortable. Okay, this idea of having your extra um, robe tied up around you and having to keep that where it needed to be was just not as comfortable. But it was what was necessary in order to take action. The second thing we see here in this idea of being ready and prepared is this image of keeping your lamps burning. Now, you could only keep your lamp burning if you had an ample supply of oil. And this would have had to have been purchased in advance and stored in advance. When the oil ran out, if it was in the middle of the night, this was not the time to go and get extra oil, right? You were too late. And remember back then how crucial light was. We probably take for granted, even on a dark night here, how many street lights, parking lot lights, car lights, and just ambient light there is around us. And so them having their lights burning was crucial for them to be able to discern accurately the world around them. And we see Jesus often uses this picture of lights to have to do with spiritual discernment. There needs to be an awareness of what is happening around us spiritually, the implications of the things around us. And so Jesus is calling his disciples, first and foremost, his servants, to be ready and prepared. 
and how crucial it was. We have to remember that we cannot wait. The practical implication of this is that we cannot wait until Jesus comes back to get our spiritual lives on track. An attitude of readiness and preparation is about looking forward. What do I need to do today to prepare for Jesus coming back? Now, what do I need to do tomorrow? What do I need to do right now to prepare for Jesus coming back? Now, I want to I illustrate it this way, okay? Use your imagination with me. Imagine it's Sunday morning. Okay, you probably didn't have to imagine too hard, okay? It's Sunday morning. Just wind back the clock in your mind a couple of hours, right? Maybe you're like our family. You set a time and you say, hey, at this time we're planning to leave, right? And inevitably, there's always somebody in the family, and by the way, this is generally me, that says, oh yeah, I'm ready to go. I just got to put my shoes on, grab my Bible, do my hair, finish my breakfast, ready to go. Right, by the way, I'm not ready to go. There's a lack of preparedness there, right? And so we have to, with this readiness, have everything set to go to be ready. You know, a lot of mornings when we are running late, I often, whether it's church or an appointment or, or whatever it is, I'll spend that time in the car as we're going somewhere reflecting, how do we get here? How do we, how do we not be late the next time, right? And sometimes I can go, yeah, there was this thing that came up unexpectedly five minutes ago or eight minutes ago or 10 minutes ago. But most of the time what I recognize is if I had taken the time the night before to pack the bag that we needed to get out the door, we could have gotten there a little faster. If I had taken the night before to lay out the clothes for the kids the night before, we might have gotten there a little bit faster. If I had gone to bed a little earlier the night before, I wouldn't have snoozed through all three of my alarms. If I had gotten the kids to bed a little bit earlier, I would have gotten to bed a little bit earlier. I would have gotten the kids to bed a little bit earlier if I had said no to one more whatever game or show that we were watching or whatever it is, right? And so what we find is success in the present begins with planning and preparation, that we have to be prepared for Jesus' coming in advance. And the same thing is true in our lives as well. Which, by the way, if you haven't learned this to being on time places, it starts the day before. And I want to encourage you to, having an effective time with Jesus in the morning starts the day before. The decisions that we're making at six o'clock at night are, are the decisions that will impact our ability to have fruitful or exhausted and non-existent time with him in the morning. And so just as these, these servants were called to be ready and prepared, this is an attitude that we must also reflect as well. If Jesus came back today, would you be ready? Would you be prepared? The next attitude we see here in the passage is in verses 36 and then 39 and 40. And it's an attitude of watchfulness and expectant. These servants were watchful and expectant. They were looking for their master. It's what their eyes were fixed on. They weren't surprised when he returned. It was what they were longing for. Their watchfulness led them to be responsive to their master's actions. Is this true of us? Are we watching for Jesus to work in our lives and responding when he does? Are we expecting him to do big things? You see, these servants didn't try to pigeonhole their master's return into their schedule. Instead, they were ready for whenever he came. And you see here kind of in verses 39 through 40, Jesus changes the illustration a bit. 
And he suddenly talks about the coming of the master being like a thief in the night. Jesus' point is to say, hey, thieves don't call ahead. They don't make a reservation. They don't schedule a time to break into your house and steal. They are looking for an opportune time when no one is expecting them. And in the same way, Jesus is going to come back at a time when no one is expecting him to. Why? Because then nobody will get the credit for predicting the day and the time that he came. No one will write a book about 23 reasons why Jesus came in 2023. He will come at a time that is unknown and unexpected and really not at all what any of us would predict because no one can boast before him. So what about us? Are we watchful and expectant for Jesus coming? Did you wake up this morning? Did I wake up this morning thinking, I hope today's the day Jesus comes back? Were we watching for him? Or are we so easily distracted by what our calendar or our to-do list or our schedule tells us is laid out for us today? Do we have an attitude that is longing for him to come? knowing that today might not just be another ordinary day. It might be the day that Jesus comes back. The last attitude we see demonstrated in this passage is servants who are awake and alert. Servants who are awake and alert. And we see this in verses 37 through 38. You know, it's interesting as I think about this, Jesus is teaching about his return. Most often the time of day that he says he'll come back is at night. So what does this mean? Does this mean that Jesus doesn't want us to ever sleep? I don't think so. Jesus has designed us with bodies that need rest. He designed our seven-day week and set aside one day for rest. And so certainly the call is not that we should never sleep. The call is that sleep is what our body naturally craves. And this alertness pushes back against what is natural to us. It is natural for us to want to, to check out, to feel indifferent about Jesus. And so we're called to fight against that. I think in many ways, it's easy for us as followers of Jesus to be lulled to sleep, especially in this age of entertainment. We must be aware that our constant pursuit as a people of comfort and pleasure more often turns our hearts not to worship but to selfish indulgence. One of the greatest attacks of the evil one is by distracting God's children from being alert and ready and instead lulling us to sleep. Jesus gives a special commendation in this passage to the servants who are found awake, especially in the second and third watch. Now, mind you, that's between 2 a.m. and 5 a.m. That's when I get some of the best sleep, right? I hope for you too. And so this time that is the most unnatural to be alert is the time that he is calling us to be awake. When it's hardest, when it's most difficult, when we're most distracted and weighed down is the time that he's calling us to a spiritual alertness. Where do we go for refreshment? You know, for me personally as an adult and as a parent, this temptation is most often pronounced in the evenings when the kids are in bed and the house is cleaned up and I sit down. Where do I go for refreshment? Most often, I turn here and I turn on my phone or I turn on my TV. That is the, the great temptation, seeking to be entertained, to try and forget about the worries of the day by lulling my mind to sleep with entertainment. But instead, we should turn with vigilance to pray 
and to be watchful, to ask Jesus, what are you doing in my life today? How are you trying to make me more like you through whatever complex situations you've put me in? How can I grow to be more sanctified? How can I be awake and alert to the spiritual realities that are around me? How can I be ready for you, King Jesus, today? How about you? If you were to take a cross-section of your week, what would it show about your attitude about Jesus' return? What if you were to look at how you spent your time? What would it say? Where have you invested it this week? yesterday. Are you living as one who's ready for the king? What if you were to look at your money and how you spent your money? Did you invest your money this week in things that made you and me comfortable and brought us more pleasure? Or did we give until it hurt because we wanted to invest in the kingdom? Did we want to be ready for King Jesus? Are we seeking to be prepared for and expecting the king. So the next thing Jesus addresses in this is the motivation of a vigilant servant. Because let's be honest, these attitudes are hard to sustain. Why is that? Because ceaseless vigilance can lead to fatigue. Let me illustrate it this way. When I think about vigilance and fatigue, I often think about being behind the wheel of a car, okay? And we travel quite a bit. We're from Toledo, Ohio, Ashley and I. And so we'll do the two and a half hour trip to Toledo. Prior to being here, we served as missionaries. And so we would visit lots of churches and get lots of miles in the car. And I don't remember the, spe the specific time, but there was a night we were traveling down a country road. And it was like most country roads. It was pretty quiet and pretty straight. And it had been a long, tiring day. And there we were moving along at 50-something down the road. No big deal. Starting to just feel the the exhaustion of the day, when suddenly, whew, a flash of fur went across the front of the car. And before I could do anything, it was there and gone. And as I looked to my right, I caught out the rear view mirror. Whew, another flash of fur go behind us. And Ashley and I sat there, and it was like, death grip now on the steering wheel. Like, I'm not tired. I'm not tired now. I'm ready to go, right? And I, to this day, we still aren't sure, other than God's miraculous provision, how we didn't hit the deer that went in front of us, or behind us, or have the deer hit the side of our car, frankly, at how fast it all happened. But it was a real clear reminder of the importance of vigilance as we were driving. Now, I can tell you for the next 15, 20 minutes, I was ready. If anything came, I was ready. I could move that foot from the gas to the brake in a half a millisecond, right? I mean, we were, we were ready to go. But it wasn't long before that wore off, and it was just a lot more country road again. Another time that we were driving, we were in the uh, Upper Peninsula, if you know, beautiful M28. We were going along, and again, morning or night, I can't remember which one it was, but it was dark. And I remember driving, and as I drove, doing what I'd learned to do was to watch the white line on the side of the road. And as I would drive, I would suddenly see two eyes. Oh, no, I know what that is, right? And I'd be ready to hit the brakes, and oh, four eyes, six eyes. Oh, my goodness, there's a whole family of deer over there, right? And I remember this drive. I would see a couple of deer. We stopped counting after a while, because I don't know how many we saw. Um, but there would be that sense of like, oh, I'm getting tired again. Oh, more eyes, right? When I kept my perspective on the right things, it helped to give me the right motivation. I need to help get my family safely to vacation. And the same is true for us. Even though ceaseless vigilance can lead to fatigue, we have to keep our eyes on what 
our right motivation should be, what should drive our heart's desire. And so I want to I share with you two of the motivations that we see here specifically in this passage. The first one is we see the joy of being blessed. We see this word three times in the passage in verses 37, 38, and 43, okay? Now, when you hear this word blessed or blessed, right, this is not the quaint Christianese word that we often will hear. You know, how are you doing today? I'm blessed, right? This is not the word that we're talking about. Jesus is, is talking about a deep filling with joy, to be made happy, to receive God's favor. These servants wanted the approval of their master more than anything else in the world. And they were looking forward to hearing him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Do you know the reality is, as humans, all of us were designed to be in relationship with God. That's how we were made. If you go back to Genesis 1 and 2, you see Adam and Eve were walking in the garden with God and were naked and were not ashamed. There was a freedom and there was a beauty and an intimacy in their relationship with God. Nothing between them, nothing to fear, no reason to hide. There was a taking in of the fullness of God's glory and getting to live in that fullness, all their needs met. But then we know in Genesis 3, they fell into sin. They were tempted to not trust God's provision and to try to do things on their own. And when they stepped out, humanity's relationship with God was broken and shattered forever. That longing is still within each of our hearts. The longing for satisfaction and joy that can only come from having a right relationship with God. And I can tell you that nothing here in this world will scratch that itch or satisfy that desire. Not family, not respect, not people, not relationships, not um, money, not power, not influence. Fill in the blank. The more you have, the more you'll want, the less satisfied you will be. All of us were designed to live in perfect relationship with God. But sin broke that. And so now here, we come to Luke, where Jesus, God's Son, has come into the world and is preaching life. He came to seek and to save the lost, to heal the blind, to open spiritually dark eyes, to help us to see our brokenness, and that none of our efforts, none of the religious elite's efforts were good enough. None of our works can earn God's favor. And so what Jesus did is he obeyed the Father perfectly, ultimately leading to his death on the cross, his willing sacrifice for his children. And he died to take the death we deserve, the punishment that we earned through our sin, Jesus took on himself. And he bore God's wrath for us. And then, as you know, God raised Jesus back to life after three days as a picture of what all of us who put our faith and trust in him can have new life, that we will be restored and made perfect one day and get to live in perfect relationship again with the Father. But none of that can come through our efforts. And so when we talk about the blessing or the joy of being blessed, it doesn't come from our ability to stay alert. We cannot earn it. It is a gift that comes through God's grace in Jesus. And so we can know, we can experience being this blessed servant if our identity is in Jesus, if our faith is in his work, not ours. 
If our faith is in what he's done, if we recognize that we can't live up to God's standard, only Jesus. And the servants who are watching and waiting and are ready and are expectant are doing it because they know that when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin. He sees Jesus' perfect obedience on our behalf. And they can know, and we can know, the joy of restored relationship with Jesus. And so our motivation to stay awake, to be watchful, is not to earn this blessing. It is because we have already been given this blessing in Christ. And we want this blessing, we want to experience this more than anything else in the world. Our identity and our efforts, all of us, is wrapped up in Jesus. We don't have to be afraid of his coming because when God looks at us, he sees Jesus' perfect obedience on our behalf. So the joy of being blessed, that's the first motivator we see in this passage. The second one is verse 37. I want to read this to you, and I just want you to recognize there would have been pin drop silence and maybe even a couple of hands raised when Jesus said this part of the parable because in this culture, what Jesus is saying flipped everything on its head. This is not the way things were, okay? Here's what Jesus says in verse 37. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table and he will come and serve them. Now, there were a lot of servants probably in Jesus's audience and they were like, uh, it doesn't work like that, Jesus. When the master comes back, the reason we stay alert is because he's going to have stuff that needs unloaded. He's going to be hungry. His feet are going to be dirty. And our job is to serve him. We've got to be ready to serve him. What, what do you mean? He's going to come on and put on work clothes and he's going to tell us, hey, sit down, guys. Let me serve you. Yes. Everything Jesus said here would have flipped their paradigm upside down. It would have been shocking. And the motivation for us to be alert and to look forward to Jesus' coming is because we can know that he loves us and has our best interests in his mind. And he will always do what's best for us. There's no fear. Jesus is not a master who's fickle. We don't have to stand looking for him and be like, I wonder what kind of day Jesus has had today. Is he going to be mad? Is he going to be edgy? Is he going to be impatient or angry? Is he going to be happy? Is he good? No! Right? because they knew their master and they were looking forward with expectation. We know he loves us and he cares for us and we're going to get to feast with him as his friends. We're anticipating this. You know, when we think about our motivation for being ready for the king, do you and I believe that Jesus' coming is actually the greatest of all possible joys? I'm going to illustrate it this way. Hopefully you're more spiritual than I am. But when I was a kid— I would go to church, and I remember one of my Sunday school teachers, and we talked about heaven one day, right? And she, I said, you know, what's, what's heaven going to be like? And she said, it's going to be great. It's going to be just like church. And I thought to myself, church is really boring. I don't know, and I'm not excited about this, right? And the reality is, I remember praying as a kid, Jesus, please let me get married and have kids before you come back. Do you get what I was saying? I actually thought that being married and having kids would be more satisfying than Jesus. No way! Now I see and I study the Word and I go, there's nothing better. Fill in the blank. Whatever it is that you're hoping for, that you want, that you're longing for, none of it is as good as getting to be with Jesus. That's the best thing. And getting to feast with Him as His friends. That's something we can get excited about. 
do we really believe that Jesus' coming is the greatest of all possible joys? Well, Jesus doesn't end the passage here, okay? He has clearly outlined what it means to have the attitude of a servant, to have the, the motivation of a vigilant service, but now there's a warning, okay? And the warning is, are you a true servant? And so he gives a test of a true servant. Jesus is very concerned about preaching the good news and calling people to see hypocrisy in comparison with genuine faith. And so the first comparison we see here is Jesus' test of a true servant is, are you serving others or serving self? In verses 42 and 45, we see a comparison of these two types of servants. Both have been given oversight of other servants and put in a managerial position. In verse 42, we see the faithful servant, or the, the true disciple. He has seized his position as given to him to care for the needs of others. The text tells us that this servant gives food at the proper time to those that he's been entrusted with. This was not a one-time act. This was a daily faithfulness in how the servant lived. His master had given him directions on how to care for the servants, and he is acting based on those directions, regardless of whether his master was present or not. In verse 45, we see the comparison here with an unfaithful servant, a hypocrite who says one thing but does another. Instead of being ready and watching for his master to re return, he assumes that his master is delayed, and therefore his master won't know what he's doing and won't hold him accountable. So this servant uses his position to serve himself. He abuses those who are under him and takes advantage of them, using them for his own personal gain. Instead of caring for them and feeding them, he indulges in their portion to the point of making himself fat and drunk. His quest for his own personal comfort at the expense of anyone around him. So you reflect on this today. Which of these two servants are you? What is the trajectory of your life? Are you one who serves others and uses the resources and the time that God's given you to serve others? Or do you see others as resources to be used for your comfort, for what you want? Or are we looking to bless others? What does this look like in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, and in the church. Do you come on Sunday ready to serve others, or are you looking for others to serve you? Are you consistently plugged into serving our church family? There's a lot of different ways you can do that, whether it's on the welcome team or on the worship team or being a part of our security team, our kids' ministries, the nursery ministry. We're always looking for people to serve or are you serving our church family through different events and opportunities that come up, whether that's Maranatha Movers or uh, honestly, one that's coming up is our missions conference. And if you've read the Maranatha Minute, you see we have opportunities for people to serve and plug in, to welcome, to greet, to check in, to set up for food, to tear down. How are you serving the people around you and using the resources that God has given you to build up and bless those around you? The second thing we see under the test of a true servant is that greater knowledge brings greater accountability. Jesus reminds us that those who have more and those who know more will be held to a higher accountability. 
Juxtapose this with what Pastor Andrew preached recently about thinking about India and the poverty there compared with the wealth that we have been given here in America. How are we using our money not to make ourselves more comfortable, but to help advance the kingdom? We have to recognize that there are very few others in this globe or in the time of history that have been given as much as we are experiencing right here in central Ohio today. Much will be required of us. How are we being accountable for the resources, the teaching, the 15 different translations of English Bibles that we have accessible to us? How are we using those things to invest in God's kingdom? Ultimately, in verses 43 through 47, we see that responding to God's word is the ultimate test, either responding in obedience or in rejection. This is the true test of whether someone is a disciple or a hypocrite. Obedience has to do with this faithful servant who did what his master called him to do. He acted in a way that was consistent with what he had heard. He knew that there would be grave consequences for disobedience. And so he lived in a way that reflected that what he believed and what his master said was true. On the other hand, the disobedient servant spurned his master's word. He lived in open rebellion and did what he thought would satisfy himself. But what we see in the end of the story is that it didn't. Ultimately, it brought wrath and destruction. So in closing, my question to you today is this. How will you respond to the gospel? You have heard it today proclaimed from God's word. The only hope we have is in Christ alone and in his work on our behalf. Will you put your faith in him or will you try to put your faith in your own efforts? Will you obey his word or spurn it and turn away from it? Do we recognize that our only satisfaction and our greatest joy is in Jesus? Recognize that there is a great accountability that comes upon us in hearing God's word today if we reject it. It is the way that leads to destruction. But I implore you, today is the day of salvation. To put your hope in Jesus, not in yourself, to ask him for the gift of faith that we might depend on him and not on our own efforts and that we might be servants who live in faithful readiness for the return of our king. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you have given us the truth about who you are, that we can rightly discern and understand the wonder of who you are, and the desperate state of our hearts. God, I pray for those who are here who have not yet put their faith in you, that you would give them the gift of faith, that they would see and sense their need and the urgency that you can come back any day. Father, help us to live as those who are ready, to be watchful, to be prepared, to be excited and expectant for you, King Jesus, to come back. May we be found faithfully expectant. Thank you, Spirit, for the power that you give us to grow and to become more like you. Help us in our weakness, we pray. And we give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. I hope you have a good rest of your morning.